welcome to the 94 Feet Report. I'm your host, as always, Eric Spropolis. Before we get into this festive edition of the 94 Feet Report basketball podcast, I want to remind you uh, that you can follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros. You can get all the information for the podcast and my other work for the Dream Shake on Espination, NBA lead as well. And uh, I want to talk to you about our two sponsors, Fan Essentials. Use promo code 94FEET at checkout for 30% off your first subscription of Fan Essentials. And Daily Fantasy Nerd, you can check out the link in some of our episode descriptions as well as on Twitter. And um, you will get some great Daily Fantasy tools there for DraftKings, FanDuel, etc. If, if you play those fantasy games. Uh, so this will be our second episode of the of the show after it's been you know newly segmented. We have now six segments. If you missed our episode last week, you can go check it out. Um, we basically have six segments that are covering the 94 feet of the basketball court, starting from the baseline to the uh, other end of the court. Um, and each segment kind of covers a, a new part um, of the court and of, of the NBA in the past week. That's basically the goal um, of the segments. So we'll start off with the baseline like we did last week, and then we'll move into full court press, then half court heave, then three points, um, then something foul, and then finally we'll conclude with and one. So let's get started. Let's get into the baseline. All right, in today's baseline, we're going to be covering the Christmas Day games. Um, you know, that was pretty much the big uh, day or event of the NBA week, of course. Christmas Day is always a big day for the NBA. Uh, we had five games yesterday. You could argue that, you know, two and a half of them were good, and the other two and a half were, um, you know, pretty mediocre or pretty pretty much unwatchable. Um, but then again, after the Celtics, Knicks, and Cavs, Warriors games, both were very good games. Um, it's going to be pretty hard to uh, stay and to continue to watch uh, Bulls, Spurs, Thunder, Wolves, and then Clippers, Lakers, especially when the Clippers were so undermanned. But I want to focus not really on the games themselves specifically, but kind of takeaways, key takeaways from the Christmas Day games. And uh, ironically, one of our later segments in today's show um, We'll be talking about takeaways from, from NBA games because people like to overreact a lot. I'm going to try not to overreact uh, with some of these key takeaways from these Christmas Day games, but I think that for some ga- for some of these games, there were some takeaways to at least keep your eye on, keep your eye on for the rest of the season. So the first takeaway I want to talk about the Cavs, and a lot of people have been saying this on, on Twitter, on, on shows, on TV, etc., that the Cavs look like the only team that is actually comfortable versus Golden State. So the Cavs obviously won yesterday, 109-108 with the Kyrie Irving's uh, game-winning shot with three seconds left. And then Kevin Durant was, you know, many would argue was tripped by Richard Jefferson, but either way, he didn't get a shot off. And uh, the Cavs won again. And this is the fourth time that the Cavs have beaten the Warriors in a row. So they had that 3-1 comeback in the finals, that's three straight there, and then this is their fourth straight victory over the Warriors, you know, that's pretty unheard of, considering the fact that talent the Warriors have and how dominant they've been over the past two seasons, including the playoffs. Um, and so if people are saying that you know the Cavs look at the only comfortable team versus Golden State, and, it, and to an extent, I think that's true. I mean, they looked they looked comfortable yesterday. They came, they got down, they were down the majority of that game. I think they the Cavs were only leading by like leading the game for a couple of minutes total out of the forty eight minutes of the game. Um, and you never really saw any panic, I would say. Uh, even when they were down, I think, 14, 14 in the beginning of the fourth quarter, they looked pretty comfortable. They got back in it slowly. And then, you know, Richard Jefferson really got the crowd and the team back into it with those two monstrous dunks. LeBron had some really great plays. And, of course, Kyrie came in to close that game. And uh, they looked comfortable even when they were down. They were down the majority of the game at home. Um, you know, the, the Cavs trolled the Warriors before the game started, putting up that, you know, that big wallpaper of LeBron stuffing Iguodala in the finals, Game 7. Um, so, you know, you know, you would expect the Warriors to come out angry after being trolled before the game in Cleveland. But the Cavs looked comfortable, even though they were down the whole game. They came back and won it in, in the crunch time. And, you know, I would agree. The Cavs look at like the only team in the NBA that truly seems comfortable for the whole 48 minutes when playing Golden State. Though I would argue that the Spurs in the first game they played in the first game of the year, they looked really comfortable in those 48 minutes as well. So we'll have to see when the Spurs play the Warriors again. But so far, the Cavs look the most comfortable team against the Warriors so far. The second takeaway I want to talk about are the Celtics, because the Celtics won in New York yesterday um, in a fairly comfortable game. Now, they, they almost choked that big lead in the fourth quarter, but they did close it out eventually. Um, and... Uh, the Celtics look like they're getting into their groove. Now, you know, 
they're still not a great team, especially record-wise, but that's mainly I would chalk that up to, um, one, having a significant addition in Al Horford in the offseason, um, and two, the injuries. Horford missed, I think, five games. Jay Crowder missed a couple of games. Isaiah Thomas missed, I think, around five games. Um, Marcus Smart missed the, the first two weeks of the season, essentially. Um, they've had a lot of injuries, so they're getting healthy. Um, they're playing really good basketball lately. They've won, uh, I think they're 6-4 and four in their last 10 games. They've had some good wins. Um, again, they've had a lot of road, road games, and their road record is 12-7. and seven. That's really good, and you know, having a lot of road games early in the season is a good test for a good team because if you win the majority of those road games, you know, it is hard to win on the road. And then, second of all, those a lot of those road games coming in the early part of the season can really build up, you know, a team's character and and you know, resistance to struggles later on in the season, especially for a team that has a new addition in Horford and still, you know, trying to fit into that contender status in the East. Um, you know, I'm comfortable. Um, that saying that the cat, the Celtics will finish third in the East this season, uh, I don't think that's a surprise to anyone really. Um, so we'll see what that what happens moving forward. But you know, considering the fact that the Celtics are finally getting healthy and winning games on the road is a good sign for a good team, which I think a lot of people expected them to be a good team and to be a contender in the East. You know, not necessarily for the finals, but at least a contender to to knock off maybe the Raptors to at least you know have a different team in the conference finals. You know. The Raptors have been playing great basketball, so we'll have to see if the Celtics can keep it up because I'm confident that the Raptors are going to, but it's a good sign that the Celtics are getting in a group. makes the Eastern Conference more interesting, in my opinion, which is what everyone wants, um, I would agree, because no one wants to see a boring conference, especially in both the Eastern and Western Conferences. So the more interesting a conference can get, the better, and the Celtics are that team that can make the Eastern Conference more interesting. The third takeaway I want to talk about is is the Chicago Bulls. You know, are they spiraling down? I'm not going to say they're going to collapse from here on out, but I'm talking about spiraling down out of the playoff picture. Um, they've lost three straight. They're now 14-16 and 16 on the season. Now, this is a Chicago Bulls team that NBA fans and media and analysts were pretty 50-50 split on. Um, you know, some people expected them to be a comfortable playoff team. Some people expected them to barely make the playoffs. A lot of people expected them to barely miss the playoffs. A lot of people expected them to comfortably miss the playoffs. Um, I was on the barely missed the playoffs team. I thought they were going to win 40-ish games and be the ninth or 10th seed. And it looks like they're going to finish like that. Now, it's, of course, it's only the first 30 games of the season. They've got time to turn it around. But, you know, they started hot, and now they're cooling down because their three-point th- three shooting is back to where everyone thought it was going to be, which is disastrous. Um, they're having some, chem- not chemistry issues, but Rondo has not been fitting in. He's been criticized a lot for playing lackadaisical defense, basically coming into the games just to... Um, get his assists, get his stats, and basically cruise on defense. And, you know, Jimmy Butler's had to handle a lot. Of course, Jimmy Butler's been playing great. He's going to be an all-star, probably, and should be an all-pro. Um, but he can't do everything. They have a lack of shooting, just a, a, a poor, a poorly built team for a Fred Hoiberg-coached uh, team. And I think this will be resolved in the offseason with either Hoiberg's firing, the GM firing. Something's got to happen. But they've lost three in a row, 14-16. They got blown out by the Spurs yesterday, allowed LaMarcus Aldridge and Kawhi Leonard to just go off against them. Um, and it looks like the Bulls are on their way to missing the playoffs, which is what, you know, about, I'd say, 50% uh, 50% at least of media and analysts, including myself, predicted for the Bulls to miss the playoffs because of a lack of shooting, lack of cohesion, chemistry, etc., and some tension within the locker room and the organization. So we're seeing that now, lost three straight, so the Bulls could be spiraling down out of the playoff picture. And the final takeaway I want to talk about from the Christmas Day games is the Los Angeles Clippers, because it's clear that they're going to be in trouble if they have long-term injuries besides the Blake Griffin injury. So Blake Griffin, we know, is out four to six weeks. Um, CP3 is now hamstring, and he has missed the past two games. Um, and we don't know he's day-to-day. J.J. Reddick got hurt last night in the loss to the Lakers. He is now day-to-day with a hamstring. So those hamstring injuries are really interesting. You don't know what's going to happen with them, how to best resolve them. Of course, you don't want to rush them because it could turn into a more disastrous injury, so they'll probably hold them out a couple more games. But the Clippers have now lost to the Mavericks and Lakers in back-to-back games, two teams that they should be beating. Again, if they miss CP3, Blake, and Redick for extended periods of time, either whether it overlaps or not, the Clippers are going to be in trouble. They're not going to be in trouble enough to fall out of the top four seeds, I believe, but even them getting the four seed is a big problem for them because that the, getting the, to the Western Conference Finals, they, should, they really have to be a top three seed. So if they have these injuries, it's clear that they cannot win games without Chris Paul. It's proven they can win some games without Blake Griffin. Um, we don't know. They haven't really missed J.J. Redick before. Um, but if they have any of those significant injuries to their, you know, big three or big four for significant periods of time, the Clippers are going to be in trouble in that fight for the third seed. Again, they're half game out of the third seed now behind the Rockets. 
Rockets have a pretty easy schedule. They also have an injury of their own with Clint Capella. That's a big deal. Maybe they'll trade for someone who knows with that. That's a whole separate issue. But the Clippers are going to be in trouble if they have extended injuries to CB3, Blake Griffin, or JJ Redick. So those are just four key takeaways from the Christmas games that I you know, just thought of off the top of my head. Of course, if you dove deeper into the games, you could probably um, come up with more takeaways, such as Kyrie Irving's hot play or his clutch play. Um, but we're going to talk about that later in a different segment of the show. So that's the baseline for today's episode, just four key takeaways from the Christmas games. And now let's move on to our semi-main segment the full court press get ready because it's time for the full court court press press, we will spend some time talking about offense or defense now that's a pretty broad question right there's no that really isn't a question but the really the, one, the thing I want to talk about is kind of the importance of both or, you know, either one in terms of winning uh, in the NBA. So we all know the story, right? The story is that offense wins regular season games and defense wins championships. That's Defense wins championships is a slogan for any sport. Um, but the, the kind of story that offense wins regular season games is especially true especially true and especially uh, kind of assumed in the NBA. You know, when Mike D'Antoni had success in Phoenix... People would say, oh, you know, they won a lot of regular season games. He had two 60-win seasons with those Suns teams, those seven seconds or less Suns teams, and he could not make the NBA Finals. He made two Western Conference Finals with those teams. Now, that's pretty good playoff success, but again, not enough playoff success, you would argue. So the thing is, we know this story, right? We know the assumptions that, you know, offense wins regular season games, defense wins championships, or defense wins in the playoffs, essentially. But is that really true? Especially recently, we should talk about that being true more recently because we're going to be talking about the future now, right? Um, let's look at the past NBA champs to see where they ranked in both offense and defense. Now, I'm using offense and defense of ratings because those are the kind of the, the better statistic to measure offense and defense because it adjusts for pace. Um, so let's look at the past couple of NBA champions and see where they ranked in both you know both ends of the floor and see what you know. And then we're going to analyze some of the quote unquote contenders from this season on the criteria that we come up with for analyzing the past NBA champions. So the the Cavs last year, they were 4th in offense and 10th in defense. So they were not incredible defensively, right? They weren't top 5. They were barely top 10. They were 10th in defense. Now that's good. That's You would argue that's great, but it's not elite, right? Elite defense is top 5, top 7. You know, barely squeezing into the top 10 at at number 10 is not exactly elite defense. Now, they had an elite offense, which was, it was top five, and they were able to come back from 3-1 down against the Warriors and win the title. Now, the Warriors, the year before, they were a, an elite team. They were second offensively and first defensively. So, it's hard to kind of argue that they used defense to win the games when their offense was just as good as the defense. It's pretty clear that the Cavs did not use their defense to win games in the playoffs as much as their offense, including in the regular season, because they had a better offense throughout the entire regular season. And of course, defense does improve in the playoffs just because defense is a lot more about effort than offense has a little bit more, you know, skill needed for offense. Um, But, and defense, of course, effort improves in the playoffs, so teams' defenses usually improve in the playoffs, which is why great offenses, you know, while great offenses can cruise against defenses in the regular season, when teams are kind of, you know, on cruise control, um, in the playoffs, they, you know, they get, you know, kind of stagnant because defenses are so much better and, you know, the effort is much improved. But the Cavs were significantly better on offense than defense last season when they won the title. You can't say the same for the Warriors when they were second in offense, first in defense. So it's hard to say, hey, they, they won because of their defense. Well, some would say, hey, they won because of their second best offense in the league. So it's hard to point, you know, hard to pinpoint that team. The Spurs in 2013-2014, sixth on offense, fourth on defense. Again, another elite team, basically almost top five on both ends of the floor. And interestingly, interestingly enough, the team that the Spurs Heat beat in the finals, that the Miami Heat in 2013-2014, were second in offense, but 11th in defense. So the Heat, they were they were runner up. They didn't win the title. And someone say, oh, well, they didn't have a really good defense to win the title. But listen, they made the NBA Finals with the 11th best, best defense. Why do you think that was? Because they had the second best offense. And let's talk about the Heat when they won the championship in 2013. They were first offensively and seventh defensively. Now, of course, seventh defensively is really good. It's elite. 
Um, but first, offensively, he's the best in the league. So that's another team where their offense was better than their defense. So, I mean, you look at the Cavs last year, the Heat in 2013, and the runner-up Heat in 2013-2014, that, that are three teams that were significantly better on offense than defense and still either made the NBA Finals or won the championship. The Warriors last uh, two years ago were second offensively to their first defense, so that was basically a give or take because they were both top two on both ends of the floor. And the Spurs were sixth offensively and fourth defensively when they won the title. So you don't you don't really see teams anymore winning titles with a top two offense and a bottom, you know, in a, in a you know a, or a top two defense and a top. 10 offense like you don't really see teams anymore win with the first best defense and the 11th best offense but the basically the 2014 Miami Heat were able to make the finals with the second best offense and 11th best defense so what is this telling us about you know becoming a true contender for an NBA championship I I think it tells us that you have to be balanced on both ends of the floor so I'm being by balanced I mean at least top 10 in both defense and offense but the thing is that but having a better defense is not necessarily true for success. It's not, that story of, of offense winning regular season games but defense winning championships is not necessarily true, especially not recently in the NBA. So you have to be balanced, at least top 10 in both, but having a better defense than an offense isn't as true for success as it once was in the NBA. So now let's move on and analyze some of the quote-unquote contenders this season on that criteria. Let's basically look at the top three teams in each conference. And I've included the top four in the West because, you know, the fight for the third seed is pretty close uh, with only a half a game separating them. So Golden State, second on offense and defense. That's elite. That's basically what they did to win the title two years ago. The Cavs are fourth in offense and 13th in defense. So, you know, the Heat were able to make the finals in 2013-2014 with the 11th best defense. The Cavs made it last year and won the title with the 10th best defense, so they're going to have to move that up to the top 10 if they want to, you know, win the title this year, Hope I would assume. Um, but again, the, the jump from 13th to 10th in defense isn't that significant, but still. The Spurs are 6th in offense and 3rd in defense almost exactly what they did uh, three years ago when they won the title. The Celtics are ninth in offense and 17th in defense. Now, no one really considers the Celtics to be a title contender, but hey, they are most likely going to be the third team in the East, and you never know. They've been playing some better basketball lately. Ninth in offense is good. You want to improve that a little bit. 17th in defense has to improve to at least top 13, top 14, if they're going to have some playoff success. The Raptors are first in offense, which is incredible. They're having, having an historically great offensive season so far but they're 15th in defense which is essentially which is league average um, for them to have deep playoff success you know they might not have to improve that to win in the playoffs you never know um, which would especially prove the point of offense being more important than defense but you would like to see the Raptors to improve that comfortably within the top 15 hopefully around 12 or 13 for them to have deep success and to challenge the Cavs in the playoffs the Rockets are third offensively and 19th defensively Again, no one really expects the Rockets to be title contenders, but they are in the third seed right now. They could finish the season in the third seed, so you never know what happens in the playoffs. Again, a team that no one expected to be good defensively because of their personnel and their coach, Mike D'Antoni, 19th in defense is not exactly what you'd like to see from a playoff contender, but uh, as of like two days ago, they were 14th, so you know it's going to change a lot. I mean, it's more important that we analyze this at the end of the year, but you have to see that 19th in defense improve to at least league average if you're going to couple that with a third-ranked offense, which they have. And finally, the Clippers, 5th in offense and 5th in defense. So that's a, that's a sign of a, a truly elite team if you're top 5 on both ends of the floor. Again, to be a true title contender, you have to be balanced, at least top 10 in both. I mean, you know, it's very rare. We saw the 2013-2014 Heat have the 11th best defense and be, and be a runner-up in the finals, but the, all the other title winners were top 10 in both with the Cavs barely squeaking in last year with the 10th best defense. Again, it's it's hard to analyze which one is truly more important in the playoffs because, as I said, defensive effort does improve in the playoffs, and that kind of, you know, can hurt offenses that are cruising against, you know, defenses that are pretty relaxed in the regular season at least. But I think that story of that of offense winning regular season games and defense winning championship is is pretty, you know, overrated and not necessarily true in the past couple of NBA championship NBA champions and I think will be proven to not be true in the you know next several NBA champions it's it's pretty true that you can win having a better offense than a better defense in the NBA especially because the last couple of title winners 
have done so themselves. So again, this is an interesting thing you gotta talk about. A lot of traditionalists would always argue that defense is more important than offense. While, you know, some of the new generation, new fans, new analysts would say, you know, offense is just as important, if not more important than having a great defense in the playoffs. Again, it's going to be hard to see. We should track this throughout the rest of the season, and we will be doing this, um, especially towards the end of the season when we get into the playoffs. So we'll see and kind of when we predict um, which teams are going to be true contenders based on their offense and defense. But again, it's interesting, you know, this kind of offense or defense question, which one is more important in terms of winning. Um, it's clear that they both coincide. You have to be elite or at least top 10 in both to be a true contender. But it's clear you can win having a much better offense than a defense. And in, in the past couple of NBA champions, um, you know, the Cavs, um, the Heat in 2013, the runner-up Heat in 2014 have all been significantly better offensively than defensively. Meanwhile, the Warriors and Spurs we're not significantly better defensively than offensively. So I think it's kind of, you're going to stop seeing teams that are significantly better defensively winning championships. I think you're going to rather see teams that are significantly better offensively winning championships. Um, so teams like those Cavs last year, fourth in offense, 10th in defense, or the Heat in 2013, first in offense, seventh in defense, or the runner-up Heat in 2014, second offense and 11th best defense. So they'll have good defenses, but they'll have great offenses, and they'll still be title contenders. So we'll be tracking this throughout the season and, of course, as the years go on because it's a very interesting question. You know, offense or defense? Which one is more important in terms of winning games? And is that story or that assumption that offense wins regular season games while defense wins championships, is that true? Is it overrated? Is it just assumed in the NBA and other sports? You know, it's going to be interesting to see if that theory or story is kind of, you know, disproven over the next couple of years in the NBA. So that's the, you know, today's edition of the Full Court Press, analyzing the importance of offense or defense and how title contenders truly are formed and how they play on both ends of the floor. And with that, let's move on to the half-court heave. Ah! Ah! If you missed last week's episode of the 94 Feet Report, the half-court heave is essentially a prediction for the week. Um, originally, I was going to do a prediction, a long-term prediction, but I figured if I'm going to be doing weekly episodes, I might as well do a prediction for the week. So these predictions could be, you know, last week I predicted kind of half-heartedly that all away teams would win on Christmas. That did not come true at all. Um, this week, the half-court heave on the 94-feet report is that the Wizards will be in the Eastern Conference playoff picture, top eight, by the end of the week. Now, the Wizards have gotten off to a terrible start. They've been playing a lot better recently. Um, you know, Wall and Bradley Beal have stepped up. Um, Otto Porter is in the running for most improved player. They'll definitely be overshadowed by guys like Zach Levine and Yanis Andendakubo. Um, but the, those two have stepped up. Otto Porter stepped up. And the team has been playing a lot better recently, which is why I'm comfortably saying that the Wizards will be in the Eastern Conference playoff picture, the top eight, by the end of the week. And I'm saying this because their schedule this week is not that hard, but also very important for them to make that leap into the top eight. Because their schedule this week for the Wizards are three home games against the Bucks, the Pacers, and the Nets. It's important because the Bucks and Pacers are two teams in front of the Wizards in the playoff standings, and the Nets are a team at the bottom, essentially at the bottom of the Eastern Conference. All three are winnable games for the Wizards. If you consider the fact that they got blown out by the Bucks in Milwaukee on uh, Friday, yeah, they might want some revenge for that. Um, the Pacers, of course, they can win that game in Washington, and the Nets, they should definitely be beating in Washington for sure. So I think that the Wizards will win all three games, or at least go 2-1. and one. And because the Eastern Conference lower-seeded teams are such a mess, and I think will continue to be a mess for the rest of the season, I think the Wizards will be able to leapfrog a, a team or two and get into that eighth spot. I mean, the Eastern Conference lower-seeding is something to watch because it's, it's such a mess right now, and it's going to continue to be a mess, mainly because there are no consistently good teams from essentially the 5th through 12th seeds. The Knicks are still the fifth seed in the East right now, and I would not say they are con they are a consistently good team. Um, you continue on the list: Bucks, Pacers, Pistons, um, Wizards. Of course, even the Magic are still fighting for the playoff seeds. You know, I would say that the top four in the East are the only consistently good teams. I'd go Cavs, Raptors, Celtics, and Hornets. And even those records aren't that great for the Celtics and Hornets. I'd say they're significantly more consistent and better than the teams below them. 
Teams 5 through 12 in the Eastern Conference are just a mess right now, and, and I think will continue to be a mess because they all teams have clear weaknesses that won't be solved without some personnel changes, which probably won't happen in the middle of the season. But that's getting off tro- off topic with the Wizards. So I think that the Wizards will either go 2-1 and one or 3-0 and oh this week. I know that's pretty optimistic for a Wizards team that's been really, really inconsistent. But I think that they will turn it around eventually. One of these weeks they're going to have to turn it around. I think they can do it this week. And I think they'll do it by with winning games against the Bucks, Pacers, and Nets at home and jumping into the top eight of the Eastern Conference playoff picture. I was higher on the Wizards than most people were going into the season. I, I had them in the playoffs because I thought that a team of John Wall and Bradley Beal um, and a team that hopefully had resolved those chemistry issues from last year um, with head coach Randy Whitman, you know, I thought that, you know, they would not be able to miss the playoffs again. And they got off to that slow start and a lot of people were like, yeah, well, you know, they got chemistry issues. Scott Brooks isn't a great coach and I never thought he was a great coach, but I mean, could you get any worse than Randy Whitman? I don't think so. Um, so I thought I was pretty optimistic on the Wizards making the playoffs. They've turned it around slightly. They're playing a lot better recently. They've had some good wins against the Clippers. Um, and so I think that they can turn it around starting this week and get back into the Eastern Conference playoff picture. And I'm still confident that by the end of the year, the Wizards will be in the top eight in the Eastern Conference. So the half-court heave on this December 26th edition of the 94 Feet Report, is that the Wizards will be in the Eastern Conference playoff standings, the top eight of the Eastern Conference, by the end of the week, by going 2-1 and one or 3-0 and oh this week against the Bucks, Pacers, and Nets. So that's the half-court heave. Just a quick little prediction segment for the upcoming week in the NBA. You know, it'll test my prediction capabilities. I've never been pretty high or pretty good at making predictions, um, which I guess is good because that means that the NBA is pretty unpredictable. Um... So just, a, you know, each week we'll do a half-court heave, a pretty routine, you know, not shocking prediction for the upcoming week in the NBA. With that being said, let's move on to our second quasi-main segment, the three points. So if you missed last week's episode... The three points are essentially, we're at the three-point line in the NBA court now. We've traveled for almost more than halfway of the 94 here feet. are the three points. And the three points, we're now at the three-point line, and, and in the three-point segment, I make just three general points about the NBA. They're pretty random. They're not, they don't really, you know, coincide with one another. Just three topics that have come up, and, you know, I want to share my opinions or thoughts or analysis on those topics about the NBA. So each week we get three different points about three different topics in the NBA. The first one I want to talk about is also could have been included in the key takeaway segment from the Christmas Day games in the baseline for today's episode, but I decided that it'd be better to spend even more time on it by focusing it on the three-point segment. And with that being said, this um, this the first point of our three points today is that I believe that I'm confident in saying that Zach Levine will be better than Andrew Wiggins eventually, maybe even by the end of this season. You know, that's a pretty... You know, a lot of people are still a lot higher on Wiggins than Zach Levine because just as last February when Levine was going crazy in the dunk contest, people essentially only thought of Levine as a dunker. It's going to be hard to shed that image, but true NBA fans and analysts and media members know that Zach Levine is a lot more than a dunker. The guy's averaging over 21 points a game, three assists, three rebounds per game, shooting 40% from three. He's got to be in in the running for most improved. I put him at number two besides uh, the Greek freak, Giannis. Um, and so let's just look at the advanced numbers because I think, in my opinion, you know, of course, you know, just looking at the normal numbers, points per game, rebounds per game, assists per game, you know, shot percentages, you know, it's not clear to see that Zach Levine will will be better or is better already, but let's look at the advanced numbers because I think the advanced numbers paint the real picture of who is and will be better on the Wolves. Let's look at box plus minus. Zach Levine has a box plus minus of 0.8 compared to Andrew Wiggins' negative 3.4. That's a pretty significant difference. Offensive box plus minus, Levine is at a 3.8. Wiggins is at a negative 0.2. Again, another significant difference between the two. True shooting percentage. Zach Levine is at a 60, 60 true shooting percentage for Zach Levine. Wiggins has a 52.5 percentage. Again, another significant difference. Player efficiency rating. Zach Levine has a 17.1 PER. 
Wiggins has a 15.1 PER. That one is not a significant difference, but still in Levine's favor. And the final advanced statistic, RPM, real plus minus, calculated by ESPN. Levine is a negative 1.23, which isn't good, but in comparison to Wiggins' negative 2.52, that's pretty good for Levine. Again, a significant difference. A lot of people have had their doubts about Wiggins, and of course they've had their doubts on Levine, because just uh, just as a year ago, people were saying he's only an athletic dunker, um, you know, he can't really play make, can't really pass for others, hasn't really developed a shot yet. Again, this is criticism from over a year ago. But now when you criticize Levine, it's hard. Besides, he still has a little bit more of a lack of playmaking, but that's because they moved him to the shooting guard position, and they have guys like Rubio and Chris Dunn handling the ball more. Um, you know, as of, even as last year, Zach Levine was playing a lot of minutes at point guard. That's pretty much been taken out. He's been a shooting guard, and he's developed that jump shot. He's shooting 40% from three, which is incredible. Um... But people have have had those concerns about you know Levine and his lack of other areas of you know impacting the game on the court when he's there besides scoring and dunking. But those concerns have been eased out because Levine has developed a great shot. He doesn't have only have to rely on dunking to score, um, and he's playmaking a lot better than you would expect. You know, in his limited usage percentage, he's got I think a 22 usage percentage. Wiggins I think has a 28 usage percentage. Again, a significant difference in favor of Wiggins in terms of, you know, him getting a lot of more possessions to finish finish the possession for the Wolves. Um, but those concerns about Wiggins not contributing in other aspects of the game while he's on the court besides scoring, those are still, you know, true if not, you know, even more alarming at this point. Wiggins in his past two games, which he played 76 minutes total in these in these last two games, he has three assists and three rebounds total. He went 40 minutes on Friday night without getting a rebound and getting one assist. Okay, He had three rebounds and two assists in that loss to the Thunder. The man does not playmake and he does not rebound for his position. Wiggins is a small forward. He averages four rebounds a game. You expect a little bit more from your small forward. He averages, I think, a little, barely over two assists per game. I mean, you don't expect a lot of passing from Wiggins, but if he's going to develop into the, you know, into that potential that a lot of people thought he had and still think he has, you know, a guy averaging two, a little over two assists per game, four rebounds per game with 22 points per game, yeah, that's good, but one, he's inefficient. He's not shooting well, evident by his 52.5 true shooting percentage. He's not efficient. He has a league average player efficiency rating. Um, and all of his advanced metrics are, you know, pretty low on him. And they're negative, for that matter, which paint a pretty dark picture of of Wiggins. And people have had their concerns about how does he contrib how does he contribute besides scoring. Of course, Levine doesn't contribute that much besides scoring, but at least Levine has, you know, is developing more of a game or more of his game at a quicker rate than Wiggins seems to be doing. Again, just as of last year, people were saying that Levine is only an athletic dunker. Now, now no one, now no, you know, true analyst or fan that's paying attention to Levine is saying is saying that at all. Casual fans probably are because they're not paying attention to the Timberwolves or Zach Levine because he's flying under the radar because they've got Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns in Minnesota. But you know, I think that Levine is is clear that Levine is developing more of his game at a quicker rate than Wiggins, which is not to say that an I or anyone else is giving up on Wiggins, but I'm saying that Levine will be better than Wiggins. And I'm pretty confident in saying this as of right now. Things could change, but, I mean, it's been, you know, Wiggins has had a bigger role than Levine throughout his entire career in the NBA and has still basically developed, and Levine's already caught up to him. And Levine's role is significantly reduced in his first two seasons of the NBA. So Wiggins has been given ample opportunity to expand and develop his game, and yet Levine has already caught up to him in terms of, other ways of contributing on the court and developing his game. So because the fact that Levine seems to be developing more of his game at a quicker rate than Wiggins and almost all of the advanced numbers, maybe even all of them. I, I mean, I didn't even check all the advanced numbers, but the ones that I did check, they all paint a better picture of Zach Levine and they paint the picture of Zach Levine being better than Andrew Wiggins. So now I don't think the Wolves would care about this because you know, they have the, the three of them together. Um, it's not like you're comparing one young player from a, uh, on a different team to another young player on a different team. 
It's not like we're comparing Carl Anthony Towns and Kristaps Porzingis. We're comparing two teammates here. So the ultimate goal is that they continue to win together, or they, they start winning together for that matter, because the Wolves are still struggling. Um, the goal for the Wolves, obviously, is that they you know start winning together as a as a young you know young core of Towns, Wiggins, and Levine. So for them, they don't care who is better, Levine or Wiggins. But for the fans and analysts, it is interesting to see you know Wiggins drafted number one, the centerpiece of that Kevin Love deal to the war to the Cavs. Um, it's would be interesting to see, interesting and pretty surprising that Zach Levine has already caught caught up to him in terms of con- contributing on the court um, and limiting playing time and li- limited opportunities. And uh, the advanced numbers paint the picture that Zach Levine is and will be better than Andrew Wiggins. And I am saying, you know, on this episode of the 94 Feet Report, I am confident in predicting that Zach Levine will be better than Andrew Wiggins moving forward for the Timberwolves. Now, you're going to have to look into the advanced numbers to truly understand why Levine is better, and a lot of casual fans won't do that. But here on the 94 Feet Report, we're going to look into the advanced numbers, and we're going to see that the advanced numbers paint the picture of Zach Levine being better than Andrew Wiggins this season, essentially. And I'm comfortably saying that Zach Levine will be better than Andrew Wiggins moving forward for the Timberwolves. Let's move on to the second of our three points today. And that is, this is not really a point, but it's more of a question. What is the deal with technical fouls? Now, you might be asking, what do, you, what do you mean, Eric? Technical fouls are just part of the game. They're called on a player, and the opposing team gets a free throw. I mean, what is the deal with calling these technical fouls? I mean, I want to I wanna sit down with, you know, I want to have a roundtable of NBA referees and, you know, ask them, you know, what their criteria is for calling a technical foul. Because recently, and the best example of this was the Cavs Warriors game yesterday on Christmas, there were some controversial calls and non-calls of technical fouls in that game. For example, we had the Draymond Green early technical foul. Now, it's pretty clear that that warranted a technical. He was, you know, running his mouth, running to his bench from the other side of the court. Um, And it's clear he earned a technical, and I agree that should have been called a technical, especially with Green's reputation of having a lot of technicals and, you know, getting in the face of referees and, and, and players as well. But the question is, you know, he was not ejected. Now, I would not have ejected him because it was so early in a Christmas Day game and you don't want to, you know, you know, you don't want that to be the story of the game with Draymond Green being ejected in the first couple of minutes. But we have seen players get ejected for running their mouth, walking all the way to their bench, turning around, still yelling at the refs, waving their arms at them, you know, criticizing them out loud and, you know, going crazy, getting these teammates off of their bench, etc. We've seen players get ejected for that. And with Draymond's green reputation, a lot of people on Twitter, including myself, were surprised he wasn't ejected. Now, I, I don't think he should have been ejected because... I think it was a poor, poor foul call, which which led to him losing his attitude for a little bit, which led to him, you know, get the technical, which led to him losing his attitude about getting the technical, and then um, running, basically running to his bench. But you know, that was one situation. Then we get the Richard Jefferson technical for essentially looking at Kevin Durant after he dunked on him. I mean, come on, refs! This is a 36 year old man who hasn't dunked like that on someone in almost a, probably a decade. And uh, let's be let's be generous. It's probably a couple of years since Jefferson's dunked on someone like that. Um, and you're gonna give him a technical for basically staring at or just looking at Kevin Durant. I think you gave him like a smile or or a wink afterward dunking on him. I mean, come on. This is a Christmas Day game. The NBA is supposed to be fun. If you want to differentiate yourself from the NFL, which has been called the No Fun League because they've been penalizing celebrations and you know wardrobes and stuff like that, then the NBA should allow stuff like this. When when Richard Jefferson dunks on someone, he should be allowed to do basically whatever he wants in celebration after that. Come on, he's 36 years old on a big Christmas Day game. You don't want to have a great play and then silence the crowd and the fans at home. And, you know, instead of talking about the great play, now they're talking about the technical that you gave him for basically looking or winking at the player he dunked on. I mean, that's a little unnecessary. And another interesting call for of a technical. And then the third example was a non-call of a technical. That when they didn't call a technical on LeBron James for holding onto the rim for what felt like 10 seconds after his monstrous dunk in the closing minutes of that game. Of course, it was a great play, an and-one dunk. LeBron just posterized, I think it was Durant and Draymond, um, got the foul call, and then he hung on the rim for, I think it was about 10 seconds. And, you know, we've seen, especially in, in years past, the NBA really cracked down on holding onto the rim um, in celebrations, and they still call that for, uh, as techs. It's been called before this season. I know as a Rockets fan, I know Montrezl Harrell has gotten one or two of those calls for hanging onto the rim after his big dunks. Um, in that situation, 
I mean, just because it was a great play and it was LeBron James, you know, in Cleveland against the Warriors on Christmas Day, you still should call the technical. If you've got to be more impartial or you've got to be more objective in making these calls. Um, you know, text should obviously, technical fouls should obviously be called, but there needs to be more consistency in why and how you're calling them. Otherwise, they just seem kind of arbitrary in how they're called, arbitrary and subjective. And no one wants to, you know, argue, should that be a tech or should that not be a tech? There should be clear rules establishing the reason for a tech, because right now, when you award Dream on that early tech with no ejection early in that game, you call a tech on Jefferson for that, just that measly wink and smile at Kevin Durant after Duncan got him, but don't call the technical on LeBron James a couple minutes later for hanging on to the rim for 10, 10 or more seconds, which has been called a technical a lot in the past. I mean, I think that it's pretty clear that technical fouls are becoming a little bit too arbitrary and too subjective, and there needs to be more consistency in calling technical fouls moving forward. So let's move on to our third and final three points of this edition of the three points. And that is talking about the elimination of charges in the NBA. Again, it seems like we're talking a lot about the rules of the NBA, but you know, it, it has come up recently about the talk of eliminating charges altogether. You know, the question is yes or no. I mean, I'd love to hear what you guys think. Should we eliminate? Should the NBA eliminate charges? I mean, it's it's a pretty hot topic, a pretty controversial topic, um, pretty hard one to argue as well. Now, some argue the people in favor of, of eliminating uh, eliminating charges for that matter is that. They argue that drawing a charge isn't really playing defense. They say, oh, you know, why not instead of, you know, trying to get in position to draw a charge, why not just go up and try and block block the shot or defend the shot going straight up, you know, putting your hands up, etc. Um, and I would agree with that. It's pretty clear. You know, going to draw a charge is not really playing defense. Now, technically, according to the NBA rulebook, it is because, you're, you know, it's part of the rules. Drawing a charge is a good defensive play, um, you know, take some real, you know, guts to get rammed into by some of these huge NBA players. Um, but really, is it really playing defense? You're not going up and trying to block the shot. You're not going straight up to try and change the, the trajectory of the guy shooting. You're not trying to scare him away, blah, blah, blah. You're just trying to get, you know, underneath him to take a hit, to fall down and get the refs to call it for, to a charge for, to, for your team to get the ball back. Now, the, the problem is with this eliminating charge Kind of issue is that it's going to be it's difficult to just straight up eliminate charges altogether but i would say you should start with eliminating charges on passes because that is one of the most frustrating things about the nba right now there is nothing worse in my opinion and how many times have we seen this in a, in a close game people on you know teams on a fast break after um you know, they get a steal or a bucket in, the, in, in you know in the fourth quarter in crunch time. They're running down the floor. Someone's drawn, you know, driving to the paint. They kick it out, and their teammate hits a three. But all you hear are whistles because the player who kicked it out after driving to the rim charged uh, or you know knocked down a defender just standing there trying to draw a foul, a draw a charge. That is one of the most frustrating and annoying things in the NBA. It ruins a great sequence. You know, right? It ruins a great fast break that leads to a three in crunch time because a player who passed the ball, who wasn't even going for a shot, knocked down an opposing player who was standing in the paint. I mean, honestly, I, I am in favor of just eliminating charges on passes and leaving charges um, on shot attempts because I think that, you know, it's just too difficult to eliminate charges altogether, but you definitely have to start with eliminating charges um, on passes because the guy is not even shooting when he's, you know, you know, doing the charge on the on the other on the opposing player when he's knocking him down, he's passing to a teammate who's going to take a shot from from far away from where the charge is happening. So, just fine if the guy wants to get knocked down, let him get get knocked down, but don't call the charge. Just let the play go on and let the teammate hit a three pointer, and there you go, move on. A charge and a shot attempt that's a little bit different because the guy you know is there to get some contact, and again, it's going to be hard to dif hard to eliminate charges because then what do you do with blocking fouls? Because if you don't have charges, then no one's going to be really moving into position, and then there would really be no blocking fouls, essentially, um, and that's in those scenarios. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if, if you can, you know, kind of alter the, the rule book in that matter. Um, but if we're going to talk about eliminating charges, which I am eventually in favor for because I don't really think that drawing a charge is playing real defense, I think you definitely have to start with eliminating charges on passes and then move forward 
from there. So again, those are our three points for today's edition of three of the three points in the 94 feet report. Our first one was Zach Levine will be better than Andrew Wiggins. Our second one was what's the deal with technical fouls? They're becoming too arbitrary and too subjective. And our third one was on eliminating charges. It's essentially time to start eliminating charges on passes and then move forward from there. And with that, let's keep moving on the 94 feet report to something foul. All right, something foul. If you missed last week's episode again, now it's uh, time for foul something foul. Free throw, as you can probably tell, something foul is kind of like what we used to do on the 94 feet report, our worst of the week segment. Um, essentially, someone, someone, something that has done wrong in the eyes of you know myself and the 94 feet report. Um, and today's something foul, or is or is our um, one game overreactions. Of course, this is such a typical thing of NBA fans, especially ones who have not paid attention for the beginning part of the season. And the reason that this came up um, in my mind is because there were a lot of one-game overreactions after the Christmas Day games last year. I mean, last night, excuse me. Um, because as a lot of people know, this is kind of quote-unquote like the first real day of the NBA season, especially for casual fans who have been paying a lot more attention to the NFL. Um and even NBA fans who've been paying attention to the first two months of the season still make a lot of one-game overreactions because, hey, it's a big game, you know, on a big day, an important day, a lot of people are watching. It tends to be, and NBA is one of the greatest one-game overreaction leagues in, in the world, really. Um, but there are two great overreactions that I saw from yesterday's Christmas Day games. Let's start off with Kyrie Irving. Listen, Kyrie Irving is, is a clutch player, a great scorer. He's even developed some playmaking abilities, which is really important for him to develop as a great point guard because he's not going to play with LeBron James for for forever, you know? Um, but after Kyrie hit that game-winning shot yesterday, I saw on Twitter, I saw you know some of my fellow coworkers at NBA Lead were chatting about this, and they said Kyrie Irving is hands down a top 10 player in the league at this point, December 25th, 2016. I'm sorry, I just, I, no, no, Kyrie Irving is not a top 10 player in the NBA, he's not a top 10 player yet, he's a great player, great scorer, and he's extremely clutch, we know he's clutch, he hit that shot yesterday, he hit that shot in game 7 of the finals, but he's not top 10 overall in the NBA, and I'm not even going to say because he's bad on defense, because you know what, Russell Westbrook isn't good on defense, James Harden isn't good on defense, Steph Curry isn't good on defense, you don't have to be good on defense to be top 10 overall. But they, but Kyrie Irving is not top 10. I mean, one stat I just want to throw out there, not to throw, shade, not to throw shade on Kyrie because I think Kyrie is great, but he's 15th in, in, in point guards out of, you know, 15th out of 30 starting point guards in real plus minus. He's 15th. I mean, there's some point guards ahead of him that you wouldn't even consider to be top 10 point guards. But... Kyrie is improving, so maybe soon he can get into the top 10. I'm not saying he's never going to get in the top 10. I'm just saying as of right now, he's not top 10. Now, I'm not saying because it's his defense, but I'm saying that, you know, people were saying that, you know, he's in the top 10 because, hey, look, he's an Olympic gold medalist. He's an NBA champion, great scorer, clutch player. But really, like, come on. Can you really say Olympic gold medal as, a, you know, a criteria for being top 10? No, because the USA always wins. Can you say NBA champion as a criteria? Yes, you can. But I would put a little asterisk there because without LeBron James, the Cavs are not making the finals any day of the week or any year, really. So it's not like Kyrie led them to the NBA finals. Now, he played an instrumental role in winning the title for them as he played great um, in games uh, 5 through 7. But so did LeBron. I mean, Kyrie had that game-winning shot, which is I think was just as important, if not more important, than LeBron's game-saving block. But LeBron did still have that block. You know, if he didn't block the shot, then Kyrie's uh, the Warriors would have went up by two, and you know, you things move on from there. But Kyrie wins games, wins championships, wins gold medals because of players around him. I'm not saying he's not. He's, I'm not saying he's bad or anything. Kyrie Irving is a great young player, a great young scorer, and he's already got that clutch gene, which is going to be great for him moving forward. But to put him in the top 10 of players in the league when he's never led a team on his own is, is really hard for me to do. I mean, 
you obviously you got, I'm not going to name a top 10 right now off the top of my head. Maybe I'll do it next week on the 94 Feet Report because we can fill some segments that way. And it's an interesting discussion. And maybe I'll, you know, have a guest on who really does believe in Kyrie Irving that much. But, I mean, I think that a top 10, you know, top 10 players, you know, either need to stand out on both ends of the floor, like a like a Kawhi Leonard, maybe even a Draymond Green could be in, our top, be in a top 10, or it has to, you know, be able to lead a team on his own, which a lot of guys have, like James Harden, Russell Westbrook is doing. You know, Kevin Durant's just incredible. Um, LeBron James, of course. You know, there's just so many guys who are either great on both ends or have led teams on their own. And Kyrie Irving has done neither of those. He's not great on both ends, and he's never led a team on his own. Listen, if LeBron if LeBron somehow leaves or retires in, in you know, two, maybe three years, maybe he does retire in, in three years, I don't know, if he wins another title or two, and you, and you get a Kyrie Irving-led team on his own, well, then we'll see what he does, because I want to see what Kyrie Irving, Kyrie Irving can do on his own team. You know, before LeBron got there, and Kyrie Irving had two, I think it was two seasons before LeBron got there, the Cavs did nothing. Now, of course, they didn't have a good roster, and Kyrie Irving hasn't really developed as he is now, but still, he's never really gotten close to playoff success without LeBron James. So let's wait and hold off on the top 10 player status before we see Kyrie Irving be good on both ends or lead a team on his own to sustain the playoff success. And the second kind of overreaction, this was not really, this was a slight overreaction, maybe just kind of a misguided headline I saw, but um, there was a headline on the herd with Colin Cowherd today, and Colin wasn't there, but the, the headline was this, quote, can the Warriors ever beat the Cavs? I'm, so, I'm sorry, ever? To say that, they should have said, can the Warriors ever beat the Cavs again, because to say that can the Warriors ever beat the Cavs is implying that the Warriors have never beaten the Cavs. And, um... They did beat them. They beat the, they beat them in the finals in 2015. They beat them three times in the finals last year. Now the Warriors have lost four in a row to the Cavs. But come on, that headline is extremely misleading, and maybe it's pointing to what they think is true. Maybe can the Warriors ever beat the Cavs again? And I think that is even still an overreaction because they had the, you know the Cavs won that game by one point yesterday because of Kyrie Irving game-winning shot in th- with three seconds to go. The Warriors had a chance at a shot to win the game with three seconds left. There was a I think there was a foul called on that should have been called on Richard Jefferson, but wasn't, which would have led to some free throws for Kevin Durant, which could have won the game. And you have to consider the fact that Steph Curry played abysmal yesterday, and he has, for some reason, always plays abysmal on Christmas Day, which is very strange. Um, but still, if Steph Curry has even an average game yesterday, the Warriors win that game. They only lost by one, and Steph Curry played terribly yesterday. So, I mean, that to say that can the Warriors ever beat the Cavs again? Is, is kind of, in my, in my opinion, an overreaction because if Steph has even an average game yesterday, they win that game. If a foul is called on Richard Jefferson on that final possession, Kevin Durant most likely hits both free throws and the Warriors win that game. There were there are too many circumstances that happened yesterday for someone to overreact and say in question with if the Warriors will ever beat the Cavs again. Because the Warriors are too talented and probably too motivated after the Cavs keep trolling them with all these wallpapers of LeBron blocking them, 3-1 blowing series leads, reminders, and stuff like that. The the Warriors are too talented and at this point too motivated to beat the Cavs for them not to beat them again. And again, if Steph has even an average game yesterday or the Richard Jefferson foul is actually called, then the Warriors win that game yesterday in Cleveland and people are, you know, overreacting the other way saying... Should we just hand the title to the Warriors? So, again, it's typical of NBA fans to overreact to big games, especially on Christmas, because it's a big day of of limited games all on national television, and a lot of casual fans are paying attention for the first time all season. But and the NBA is one of the best, you know, one game overreaction leagues. But come on, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm everyone is prone to overreactions, right? I started off today's episode on the baseline with key takeaways from the Christmas games, but I thought that those were takeaways, more long-term takeaways. Um, let's not overreact and put Kyrie Irving in the top 10 because of one game, and let's not say that the Warriors will never beat the Cavs again um, because of one game with a lot of circumstances around that game and the result of that game. So, again, for those reasons, overall, one-game overreactions are the something foul um, on today's edition of the 94 Feet Report. And in just a moment, we will conclude with our and one segment.
And it's now time for our final segment on today's episode of the 94 Feet Report. Before we get into it, I want to remind you that we are brought to you by Fan Essentials, Finally, a great monthly subscription uh, service. You can pick your favorite team within your favorite league, um, the NBA, NBA, NFL, MLB, MLS, NHL. Pick your favorite team. Choose a subscription size, small, medium, large, and each month you get a box of your favorite team's gear shipped right to your door. Um, again, use promo code 94FEET at checkout for 30% off your first subscription. I've used it. I've tried it out for the Rockets. They give you great, unique gear. Um, you know, I got a winter hat I'm using now because it's cold in, in the Northeast. Got some great, you know, posters and towels and shirts, etc. Great, unique gear you can't really find anywhere else. So check out Fan Essentials and use promo code 94FEET for 30% off. And so now let's get into our and one segment, which is now we're at the end of the 94 feet um, on the basketball court. And the and one segment, if you missed our episode last week, is essentially something to look forward to in the next week of the NBA um, and stuff that we will um, most likely start off the baseline with um, on next week's episode. So last week, our and one was the Christmas Day games. And today we started off the baseline with analyzing the Christmas Day games. This week in, in the end one, we're going to be looking at three interesting games involving contenders this week. We're not going to break them down because they haven't happened yet, but we'll probably break them down, spend some time on them, and talk about some trends that come up from those games um, after they are done, obviously, and we can actually analyze them. But the three interesting games involving the contenders I wanted to at least you know point out to you so you can keep your eye out for them is uh, on Wednesday, we've got the Raptors at the Warriors. Again, it's a 10.30 game. I think it's on NBA TV, so us East Coasters will have to stay up late if we want to watch that game. Um, but not only is it between two contenders, it's between the two top offenses in the league and of all time. Now, we know the Raptors are on a historic offensive pace. The Warriors, I believe, are also on a, a historic offensive pace. So um, if you like offense, you're going to watch this game as well. And it's not, it's not going to be one of those like shootouts necessarily because the Warriors also have a great defense. As we pointed out early in the show, they're both they're second in both offense and defense. Now the Raptors are first in offense and fifteenth in defense, so they're not as good defensively. So it could become a shootout. But hey, the last time the Warriors played an incredible offensive team, um, besides the Cavs game yesterday, was when they played the Rockets, and that was a great double overtime thriller, which was a really really fun game and one of the best games of the season so far. So this Raptors at Warriors game could become really explosive. It's a good test for the Raptors in Golden State. They can make a statement on national television. I think it's on NBA TV actually. Um, it'd be a really good win for the Raptors. Of course, it'd be a great win for the Warriors to bounce back from this Christmas Day loss, which was pretty frustrating for them because we saw Clay Thompson saying that they based, the Warriors basically gifted the games for the Cavs, um, which you could argue, but I would say other circumstances decided that game, of course. The next game I want to talk about is on Thursday, we've got Boston, we've got the Celtics at the Cavs. Um, and the real question of surrounding this game is not only is it a game between two contenders, two of the top three teams in the Eastern Conference, the real question or real thing to look out for is, is Boston for real? Are they a real contender in the Eastern Conference? And they could prove that they are by not necessarily winning the game, but at least putting up a fight, you know, making the game go down to the last minute or two, um, pushing it to overtime. If they win the game, that'll be a good sign and a good statement for them. It's on national TV. I think it's on TNT. So that's a national TV audience for the Celtics to make a statement in Cleveland against the top team in the East. You know, yes, the Celtics are the third team in the East, but their record isn't great. They're significantly behind the top two teams in terms of expectations from from fans and media and record-wise. And, you know, as I said in the baseline of today's episode, the Celtics look to be getting in a groove. So we'll see if that groove continues and see if they can make a big statement in Cleveland on on Thursday night on TNT. And the final game, the final game of our three interesting games involving contenders this week is Friday night. We've got the Clippers at the Rockets. And this is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it's kind of this has turned into the battle for the third seed. Now, of course, it's early in the season and, and the standings are significantly probably going to change probably going to change significantly between now and the end of the season. But as of right now, these look like the two favorite teams for the third seed. And the other reason it's interesting is because both teams are dealing with injuries. So it's coming, this game is on Friday. So by then, CP3 and or Reddick could both be back. Maybe they're both not back. Maybe one's back. But they're still going to be missing Blake Griffin, and the Rockets will still be missing Clint Capella. So these are two teams battling for the third seed, but also two teams that are dealing with significant injuries. Of course, the Clippers are dealing with a lot more significant injuries, but any Rockets fan will tell you, Clint Capella is probably the most, probably the second most important player on the Rockets. So his loss is a lot bigger than a lot of casual fans um, would would assume or would expect. Um, so 
besides the fact that they're battling for the third seed, it's two teams that are, you know, fighting for playoff position. They never really liked each other. Um, there's a quasi-rivalry there, and they're two teams dealing with significant injuries. So those are three interesting games involving contenders this week to look out for on the and one. Toronto at Golden State on Wednesday, Boston at Cleveland on Thursday, Clippers at Rockets on Friday. And that is our edition of and one for today's episode of the 94 Feet Report. And with that, that'll be the conclusion of today's episode of the 94 Feet Report um, on this Monday, December 26, 2016. Again, I want to remind you, we are brought to you by Fan Essentials and Daily Fantasy Nerd. You can check out um, our sponsors as well. Support the podcast, support those companies. They give great products. And again, follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros to get all the information for the podcast there. Um, or you can find us. We have our own Twitter and Facebook for the podcast, the 94 Feet Report Basketball Podcast. Search us on iTunes, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, you'll find all of our episodes there as well. Um, and you can follow all my background information, my other work for the Dream Shake on SB Nation, as well as NBA Lead, on my Twitter page, at Eric Spiros. Once again, I'm your host for the 94 Feet Report Basketball Podcast. I hope you guys have a great, had a great Christmas, had, and continue to have a great holiday season, great New Year, etc. And uh, enjoy the great week of NBA basketball coming up. Take care, guys.